Are you looking to improve employee engagement and retention? Do you struggle with decisions on who to hire or who to promote? I have an amazing opportunity for a forward-thinking, purpose-led, people-first organisation to work with me on the first pilot Happier at Work programme for corporates. The programme is entirely science-backed and you will have tangible outcomes in relation to employee engagement, retention, performance and productivity. The programme is aimed at people leaders with responsibility for hiring and promotion decisions. If this sounds like you, please get in touch at ifa at happieratwork.ie. That's A-O-I-F-E at happieratwork.ie. You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for leaders who put people first. The podcast covers four broad themes, engagement and belonging, performance and productivity, leadership equity, and the future of work. Everything to do with the Happier at Work podcast relates to employee retention. You can find out more at happieratwork.ie. Knowing how to trust your gut and really becoming intimate with how your gut says, heck yes or hell no. Because as a woman leader, trusting your gut is going to be your competitive advantage at work if we really want to redefine workplaces and lead in a whole new way, in a way that feels right for you. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Happy at Work podcast. I'm so delighted that you are tuned in today. My guest today is the lovely Kelly Thompson. She is a women's leadership coach and speaker who helps women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. She has coached and trained hundreds of women to trust themselves, lead with more confidence and create a career they love. She is the founder of Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Programme and a Stevie Award winner for Women in Business Coach of the Year. She is the author of Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential and Your Paycheck, which is coming out in November of 2022. Kelly holds an MBA. She has served as an adjunct management professor and has more than 10 years of senior leadership experience in financial services and technology organizations. Her thought leadership has been featured in Forbes, MarketWatch, Parents Magazine, HuffPost and Working Mother. She is from Omaha, Nebraska, and her favorite roles are wife to Jason and mom to Haley. I know that you are going to really enjoy our conversation today. We had so much to talk about, so much in alignment with how both Kelly and I work. We talk about the issues that women face when it comes to succeeding at work and steps to overcome and to enable and empower women to progress to those more senior positions. We talk about it from the individual perspective as well as the organisational perspective. As always, I will do a summary at the end, of picking out some of the key points and challenging you to really think about what action you're going to take as a result of listening to this podcast episode. And again, I would invite you to get involved in the conversation on social media. I'm normally on LinkedIn. You can connect with me there. I'm also on Instagram at happieratwork.ie, which is also the website where you can find the podcast, you can find the show notes, you can find out more about the service. I offer as well. I really hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome Kelly to the Happier Work podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you as my guest today and I'm so excited for our conversation. Having done a little bit of research about you, your upcoming book, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Do you want to give people a little bit of a flavor for what you do, how you got to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So I'm Kelly Thompson. I'm a women's leadership coach and 
I'm an author, but I wasn't always out on my own running my own business. I actually started in corporate America. So I'm a corporate veteran. My first job was flipping fries at McDonald's when I was 15 years old. So I've been working for a long time. And um, I went to college or university, as some people call it, I know, um, in Europe, and you know, spent the majority of my years in banking and in investments, where I was predominantly, you know, one of the only women in the room, especially when it came to those higher level rooms and where decisions were made. It was not uncommon for me to, you know, be the only woman or one of the only women. And after spending about 14 years in banking, I decided I was ready for a change, something a little bit less regulated, something a little more innovative. And so I went to go work in technology. And in technology, uh, we were a healthcare technology firm. And so again, I found myself many times as one of the few women in the room. I keep going to these these industries. Um, Went to go work for a leadership development consulting firm. And so I found myself traveling um, all over the country, all over North America, really. And I was doing leadership training, leadership consulting, and I started to get into a little bit of one-to-one coaching and I loved it. I always loved coaching when I was in corporate America as well. I loved having one-on-ones with my team members. I loved, you know, really that career mentoring, developmental coaching that comes with being a leader. And I was really tired of traveling. So in my last two roles, I was on the road at sometimes 50% of the time. My daughter was getting a little older. She was in middle school at this point. I was divorced and I had now met my, my second husband who I'm married to today. And I was like, this being laid over in airports just is not glamorous. I want to be mm-hmm. home with my people. And I was really loving a lot of the one-to-one coaching work. And that's when I decided to take the brave leap out of corporate America. This was 2019 and start my own coaching practice. And so I've been doing that ever since, you know, I started in 2019. I kind of just did generic leadership coaching and then COVID hit and everything shut down. I lost about 80% of my revenue in what felt like overnight. It was about a period of a month, you know, because companies were canceling contracts because they're tightening up budgets. Speaking of the first thing to go, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so that really caused me to ask myself, okay, if I literally can't lose any more money, like, do I love my business? You know, what do I really want to focus on if things literally cannot get any worse? Because now I have the opportunity to really go in on what I want to go in on. And one of the things I know you're passionate about and that I was passionate about from all of those years as being one of the only women was I love coaching women. I love addressing all the systemic challenges that women have in the workplace. I love addressing all of the things that we have to overcome. I love to talk about some of the unique approaches that women have to take and things that they have to consider. And that just lights me up. And so I just decided to go all in on coaching women. I now focus, I've I've written a book about leadership for women. I coach women as my, my, my primary, um, my primary client, unless I'm working with teams and corporate. And so here we are today and it's totally transformed my business and, you know, I'm looking forward to what's next. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. And for the benefit of listeners who don't know the name of your book, can you tell us the name of your book? Oh yes. Yes, absolutely. So I did write a book. I kind of (laughs) left out that small detail. I get so passionate about who it's for. I forget to say what it is. Um, my book is called closing the confidence gap, boost your peace, your potential and your paycheck. And it is written definitely for corporate women. I think entrepreneurs will find it helpful as well. Um, But it's really written uh, for kind of the person that that I used to be and who a lot of my clients are. So yes, no, I love that. And like, I think that's really Kelly, where I would love to start the conversation today is talking about 
maybe generically, what is the confidence gap? But you mentioned some things there like systemic challenges that women face in the workplace. And maybe we can touch on some of those from a couple of different perspectives. So it's mostly women who listen to this podcast, but there are some men who listen as well. And the men who listen are very supportive of creating those environments where women are able to succeed as well and knowing the benefits of having the diverse workforce, especially at those senior levels. So maybe we can talk, first of all, what is the confidence gap and then dive into some of the challenges that women face so that they don't feel like they're on their own, like that they don't feel Mm -hmm. like it's only me who's having this issue, which I think sometimes when we Mm -hmm. have problems, especially at work, uh, we tend to feel like we're the only person who's experiencing that issue. Yeah, 100%. So the confidence gap is a real thing. It's a real study that came out of the Wharton School um, at the University of Pennsylvania in the United States. And basically what the researchers were taking a look at is why does there seem to be this confidence or this self-advocacy gap in gender? Mm. And so what they did was they took a group of individuals and um, they gave them kind of this, this standardized test that they were supposed to take. And then uh, they didn't tell them re- the results of this test, but basically um, after they took the test, based on how they thought they did, they were supposed to go and advocate that to potential employers and say, hey, I just took this test. Here's how I think I thought I did. And then I kind of advocate their abilities to these employers. Well, as you can maybe imagine where this story is headed, mm-hmm. men had no problem taking this test, going to these potential employers, advocating their brilliance, as you would say, and, you know, advocating for themselves. And so what would happen is, is men would be uh, more frequently hired. And when they were hired, they got higher starting salaries because again, the self-advocacy is there promoting Mm. their abilities, regardless of how they actually did on the test. But I, I bet you also know where this is going. In that, who do you think actually did a, just a little bit better on the test? The I can guess. I don't think you even need to tell us the answer. Better on the <laughs> test, not by much, but just a little bit better. But they were much yeah. more hesitant in self advocacy and self promotion. Mm. And so, what that resulted in was fewer job opportunities and lower starting salaries. And so, as a result, they kind of called this the confidence gap. And the, the researcher said, you know, their recommendation was, and I'm quoting this verbatim, well, maybe if we just tell women that they do better, then their confidence will follow suit. And so in my book, I basically say, yeah, that's not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we can't just like say, oh, you're smarter. So good luck. Yeah. I really advocate this book is written, um, as a both and, and when I yeah. say both and it means that what I'm recommending is yes, we we need to address women's confidence at the individual level. One of the main reasons why I see women holding back is because of doubt and imposter feelings. The feeling that they're gonna be found out as a fraud, that they all of their success has just been luck. And when they get to that next level, people are gonna find out that they're not as good as they thought they were. And yes, as a woman, there are things that we need to be accountable for and look internally and say, okay, maybe there is you know, some mindset work. I need to work on some limiting beliefs. I need to work on my self-promotion and advocacy. Yes. I need to look at the evidence that I did better on the test. And here's the, and organizations also need to address the systemic inequities in the workplace Mm. today that perpetuate imposter syndrome. Let me give you some examples. Mm. These can be things like you have an all white male leadership team. Yeah. 
It's the, it's the environment that people it's find the themselves in. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's no wonder that women and people of color feel imposter feelings. And there's a research that's been done on this, you know, people who've experienced racial discrimination or expect to be stereotyped based on their gender have mm-hmm. a higher incidence of feeling those those imposter feelings. Why? Because they've never seen themselves in the rooms where decisions are made. So if you've got an all white male leadership team, it might be time to evaluate where maybe there could be some systemic issues at play that perhaps some increased diversity, some psychological safety, making sure that there's a diverse group of voices heard will also benefit the confidence of not just women, but people of color, people who are traditionally underrepresented in the workplace today. And so that's kind of the confidence gap. That's an introduction into some of the systemic issues that we talk about. I also talk about the gender pay gap, which I know you've talked about on your podcast. So talk about about the gender pay gap as well. Yes. (laughs) And I talk about the unpaid workload of women and how women often get more non-promotable tasks at work, yeah. or they get more kind of office the, the kind housework. Of yeah, 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 yeah. And we aren't paid for it. And so, yeah. you know, I talk about not only those systemic issues and what needs to change in the workplace, but what, as women, what do we need to do to advocate, right? It's the both end. I'm sold already, Kelly. I want to read this book. So uh, we'll talk about about later when it's coming out, how to get it and all the rest. I do have a question. My research nerdy brain has a question about this. Um, Going back to the stats, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but I wonder, is there a way to find out? But I'm curious, is there a correlation between, say, if you isolated women and women who perform particularly well in the test, is there a difference between how they perceive themselves versus the women who didn't do as well as them. And similarly for the men, I just wonder, maybe you don't know the answer straight away. I do wonder if there's a way to find that out because I'm curious to know that if someone is more inclined to to perform better in that situation, are they more or less inclined to say how well they did? Mm, That brings up a really good point. And I don't know that answer from the research. Mm. And if that research went into it, but you bring up something really, really important. And then I think that, but let's just take my daughter for an example. Okay. Yeah. She's almost 17 years old. She's not a great test taker. Mm. You know, she has lots of skills. She's well, really smart. She's a hard, yeah. yeah. The actual yeah. test taking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think sometimes there's a little bit of performance anxiety that comes yeah. with that. And so mm-hmm. if you put her in a situation where she's going to be taking a standardized test. And then she has to advocate based on how well she did on that test. She might not have the self-confidence because she's got a history of telling herself, Oh, I'm not a good standardized test taker. Yeah. But if put her in a situation where she has to go advocate for her abilities on how empathetic she is and how she's great at in her job, um, she's a barista. Okay. And we oh, always okay. joke that, um, there's, there's a few things that people are emotional about. And one of them is food and especially how they take their coffee. And so oh. when, when like, you know, <laughs> somebody messes up your coffee or your tea order or whatever that looks like, she deals yeah. a lot of customer resolute, you know, um, you know, making customers happy, go yeah. ask her to advocate on that. And it might be a different story. So I think you bring up a really good point where we're asking yeah. like, what's the basis for which, you know, we're asking them to self-promote, you know, and what's their history of performance been with that? And does it, does that tell the whole story? It, it may not. Yeah. Yeah. I, from a personal perspective, I am good at taking those kind of tests. Uh, and I know that I'm good at taking those kind of tests, but what does that say about me in other aspects? 
Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's that's a much broader discussion, but maybe I'll have a dig around that research afterwards and see if I can find, yeah. have they kind of sliced it in, in that particular way. That's just my research nerdy brain going, yeah. you know, firing oh, off I'm with ideas. You. I'm all into that. <laughs> yes. Um, so how about we start then with the with the individual side of things and then we can go on to talk about organisations and what organisations can do to address these issues. So what what are the issues that that women are facing at work. So we talked about the imposter feelings and like not feeling good enough. What are some of the issues maybe that are cropping up or what are some of the ways that we can address those? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I addressed a few core issues in my book from the individual level. Yeah. So um, the first one that I would say that I addressed head on is, is kind of the likability bias. Oh, You know, women have often been told that being direct assertive means you're bossy, means you're a bitch, um, means you're unapproachable. And then at the same turn of the coin, men are being rewarded for and being told, Hey, you need to be more direct. Yeah. You need to be more assertive. And so one of the things that I address head on in the book, in the first couple of chapters is how important it is to do two things. One, embrace all of those flaws and, um, you, I can, I'm doing flaws in quotation marks as gifts, because my, the way I see it is that, you know what, because you are direct does not mean that it's a flaw because you're assertive, because you're too sensitive, because you're too chatty, whatever you've been called. I'm sure women can resonate that they've been called something like you're too much of something, too much of something. Yeah. You're too quiet. You're too loud. You're too assertive. You're too passive. You're too, yeah. It's always absolutely something. Instead of saying like that, that's your flaw. Like what if that's your greatest gift? Yeah. And so I encourage women to say, well, because I am direct, I am able to blank, insert whatever. I want you to really think about, well, because I'm assertive, because I've been overly sensitive, what has that enabled you to do? How was that actually your superpower? Hmm. And the second thing that I encourage them to do is really to define a set of leadership values. So what do you stand for as a leader? Because if you don't know what you stand for, it can be really tempting to fall for just about anything. And as a woman leader, you're going to be called to make a lot of decisions during the day. You're going to be inundated with a lot of well-meaning advice on how you should do things. You are often going to be told that you're too much of something. And so when Mm. you can really go back and think about, well, what are my leadership values? A way you can find that is to ask yourself, well, what are three words that I want people to say about me when I'm not in the room? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that can be a really good way to find your leadership values. And so if I want people to call me, you know, creative, respectful, and empathetic, well, how can I be direct, which was always my flaw? I'm too direct. You know, how can I be direct and respectful? How can I be direct and creative about my approach to this? How can I be direct and empathetic? So it's really kind of blending in, you know, some of that gender likability, really falling back on your leadership values. Some of the other issues that I see that, you know, women need to address in the workplace um, personally is we talked about doubt. We talked about imposter feelings. So so that's in there, but really setting boundaries, yeah, really being clear on what you will do and what you won't do, recognizing how much unpaid workload you're being tasked with every day. Little things like, are you always the meeting note taker? Are you always a person that's planning the corporate party? 
Are you the person that's constantly providing emotional support during times of change and when everything's going awry and they've asked you to now lead employee resource groups or other committees, you know, to help people along, but you're not being compensated for any of those duties. And so a big chunk in the book is, you know, how to really make sure that we set boundaries Hmm. And we're not taking on all of this unpaid work because it's perpetuating the gender pay yeah. gap, which I also yeah. talk about and how women need to speak up and ask for what they want at work. Um, and I would say the final thing I think that's really important about this book beyond, you know, making asks for salary, speaking up at work and providing a framework for that, but really trusting yourself, knowing how to trust your gut and really becoming intimate with how your gut says, heck yes. Or hell no. Yeah. Because as a woman leader, trusting your gut is going to be your competitive advantage at work if we really want to redefine workplaces and lead in a whole new way, in a way that feels right for you. So so those are just a few things that that I talk about. Kelly, so much to unpack in what we just talked about. I know, about there's, there is a lot to unpack. <laughs> there's loads. But no, I love it. I love it. There's loads of things I just want to kind of highlight. I want to illustrate to people like this idea of leadership values. Now, I talk a lot on the podcast about this concept of values, but I've never thought about it from a perspective of setting your own leadership values. What are the non-negotiables for you as a leader? How would you like to be described when you're not in the room? And being really clear on those. So exactly like you say, you don't get derailed by well-meaning advice saying, sorry, Kelly, you're actually too direct. So uh, you're going to have to manage things in a different way. But but being really true to yourself to know what you stand for. I l- really love how you've approached that, um, the likability idea and how, yes, women are perceived as uh, aggressive when they're being assertive. Whereas if a man is assertive, he's perceived as having great masculine qualities. Yeah, and that's such that's a good kind leader. Something, yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he's great. Um, and I have seen and read a lot about a shift in how we're leading and how these more feminine qualities are coming through in leadership and being recognized as really important part of leadership as opposed to the default being you need to be assertive, you need to be uh, this, you need to be that, you know, all of the things that we associate typically with with a male leader, you know. Um, so absolutely love that. We kind of brushed over doubt and imposter feelings. We can come back to that maybe. Um, The idea around boundaries, I love that as well. Um, Gender pay gap, we can touch on that a little bit later. This idea of trusting yourself, I think it's important maybe to dive into that in a little bit more detail because I think we have become so disconnected from ourselves physically that Mm -hmm. we don't know what our gut is saying and how to trust our gut. So do you want to talk a little bit more about like how to bring ourselves back to being able to trust what it is that we're feeling in our body when we get a sense of like, I'm not sure if this is right or like, who should I listen to? Or logically that doesn't make sense, but actually my gut is telling me something. Do you want to talk a little bit more around that? Oh, I love this. I love to geek out over this. So let me just ask you. And then when I'm asking you, I want to look listeners to ask themselves this question. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever felt something in your gut and you, you felt it, but like literally you just couldn't put words to it. You were like, I, you know, they, they just won't come out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. 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 Such a good illustration. I think of everybody who's felt that they're like, yes, I, I felt that. And I, I like, I, I just have this and gut I intuition listen, about everything. Or I didn't and I listen. Didn't, and, or yeah. I don't know how to communicate it. And yeah. really what's happening 
is what cognitive behavioral researchers say that your body is wiser than your mind because your body has all of these senses that are taking in information intuitively, but your verbal brain can only process this information at about 40 bits per second, where your nonverbal brain can process it, they say, at 11 million bits per second. Okay. So that's why you <laughs> get slight, feelings slight on things. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, you know, you might get a feeling to be like, you know, I need to, I need to get a second opinion. You know, if you're a mom, maybe you get a feeling where you're like, you know, I just, I need to go check on the baby one more time, right? You just get these feelings about things. And I think in corporate America, I used to run leadership development programs. I used to teach management at the local university. And I will tell you the biggest difference um, on, on what I talk about, what I teach versus what they teach in corporate programs is that corporate programs, university programs are all neck up leadership development, how wow. to read a profit and loss sheet how to put a PowerPoint deck together, how to devise a strategy, um, you know, how to look at the pros and the cons, right? A lot of that is all neck up, head intelligence. Yeah. You know, it's really using your COO and your CFO, right? Mm. In, in your head. But what I think that we have not done a good job of, and this is what I say to a lot of my clients, is we have not done a good job of what I call neck down leadership development. Yes. Only in the pandemic have we realized how great leaders are when they are neck down leadership developers. And what this looks like when it comes to your intuition is it's really going into what I call your, um, your chief human resources officer, your heart, asking yourself, what do I value in this situation? When I make these decisions, how do I want people to feel? You know, what's really important here when we think about outcomes? And then I often call your gut your CEO. It's, you know, being able to start with your CFO and your COO, you know, that brain in your head that can look at the data, looks at the facts, looks at the scenario, right? Like takes a look at all of that and starting there, going in and, you know, looking at the values, but then really checking in with your gut and asking yourself, what is mine to do here? And what is the right thing to do? And like I always tell my clients, the right decision will always feel of peace and it will never feel of dread. And that's your CEO. That's your intuition. Because my hunch is, and I'm just kind of throwing it out there for everyone who's listening. My hunch is that when you've been faced with a decision, just notice how your body reacts. Typically the right decisions for you feel open and airy and kind of light and freeing, even if they're a little scary, like leaving corporate America to start my own business was terrifying, yeah. but I literally could not help myself. It was like a magnet. It was exciting. It was energetic. It was like pulling me to it. Anytime I've been in a decision that's wrong for me, I've always had body ailments, sickness. Like I felt a sense of heaviness and constriction and dread, kind of like this little nudging that's kind of like, Hey, I don't know. Hey, I don't know. <laughs> You might want to check this again. So I would really encourage you as a leader to go in and check in with your body. And if you've never done this, I just want you to know how normal that is because you know what? Mm. We, we live in a world that um, validates two things for women. One, over-exercise and over-diet and ignore being hungry because thin is good, thin is beautiful. So a lot of people don't check in with their gut. I know I was one of them because I was too busy over-exercising and starving myself. Mm. That anything from the neck down, like just don't pay attention. Don't, yeah. it, don't pay attention to the man behind the window down there, right? <laughs> yes. And I see another, a lot of people who also numb themselves through overworking, hustling. Mm. They're too yeah. busy to slow down and check in. But the problem is, is that when you, you can't like selectively numb things. So when you're numbing all of those body instincts to slow down or eat when you're hungry or all those sorts of things, you're also numbing your intuition. Mm. So it's going to be really important for you as a woman to just honor that your body is trustworthy and to slow down 
and to listen, listen to what feels like peace, excitement, and happiness. And just notice where your body is just slowing down and saying, you know, this feels a little tight, feels a little constricting. It feels a little bit like, like dread. So I could go on for that for hours. It's so important (laughs) to listen. And before we go on to talk about companies, organizations, the systemic nature of the issues that women face, do you want to talk a little bit about doubt and imposter feelings? It's something that I am hugely passionate about. It's something I talk about all the time. And I suppose I want to make more people aware that it is a thing and that most people get it at some point. I've recently carried out some research into it and who it impacts. And it came out that of the survey of the survey respondents, 90 percent of people had experienced in the past or are currently experiencing it. And I just thought that's I mean, I've seen stats that say that 70 percent of people experience it at some point in their career. I'm not sure the origin of that, but I see it quoted absolutely everywhere. So just to kind of reassure people that if that's how you're feeling, it's perfectly normal. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. So well said. I like to talk about the difference between doubt and imposter syndrome. Yes. So one of the reasons, and let's just kind of like walk ourselves into this. So I often say that what precedes doubt and imposter syndrome is often what we're thinking about. It's kind of like um, Dr. Uh, Daniel Amen. He's a found, he's a neuroscientist. He's the founder of the Amen Cl- Clinics, and he says that as humans, we have automatic negative thoughts. Ants, yep. like on yeah, average, yeah. we're going to think between like twelve to sixty thousand thoughts per day, and like seventy-five percent of those are negative or repetitive. So I want you to just like kind of think about what you're thinking about, because what I often say and what kind of s- propelled the subtitle of my book is that so many of our thoughts are expensive. I'm not qualified. If I do this, I'm going to fail. If I speak up, people will think this is stupid. Why do I always look so terrible in my clothes? I don't look good. I don't sound when I when I speak up. I hate the sound of my voice. I mean, there's just all of these just junky spots and thoughts, yeah. and I call them expensive thoughts. Yes, because expensive thoughts are costly to your peace. They're costly to your potential at work, and they are ultimately costly to your paycheck. And when they're costly to your piece, your potential and your paycheck, guess who also pays the price? Your company. Your company, you know, has a, you know, also like, because you're not showing up in your full potential yeah. and giving your ideas, your company is not as profitable and all these things. So I always say, let's think about what we're thinking about and question if they're really true, because they can cause two things. The first one is doubt. Doubt is a normal and healthy human emotion. Like if I could shout from the rooftops, it would be this. Everybody experiences doubt unless you are a sociopath. And if you are yes. a sociopath, yeah, yeah. you are not <laughs> listening to this, this podcast. You're too far evolved. And you know what? Here's the thing. Like most like really successful leaders have experienced really strong bouts of doubt before they go on to do great things because yeah. doubt keeps us humble and curious. Yeah, absolutely. If you yeah, didn't yeah. experience this healthy and normal emotion of doubt, it means that you wouldn't care about your audience. It means that you wouldn't care about doing good work. So doubt is so normal. Normal, normalize, 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 normalize. Where imposter feelings, I think, really become a problem. And I had someone um, at a women's leadership conference that I was leading say this so well. She goes, you know what? Imposter syndrome is self-sabotage. Yeah. It is allowing doubt to become so restricting at a level where we start to play small. We don't apply for jobs that we're fully qualified for. We don't make the asks that we need to make. 
Yeah. We don't put ourselves in the rooms and advocate and speak up in ways. And that's, you know, really sacrificing your potential and your paycheck. It's like that consistent yeah. self-sabotage. So again, I want to normalize again, because I also quote this, you know, 70% of people have felt imposter syndrome. And so if you're feeling this way, I kind of have a framework I talk about in the book. And the first one is just to, just to notice it. Like you're not going to criticize your way into more confidence. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, yeah, I've yeah. tried. Yes. <laughs> if, if you can criticize can your you way just to more be confidence, better let because me know. you're you're really yeah. bad. But can you just yeah. be better because you you're bad? Be better. <laughs> so I just want you to notice it with a ton of self compassion, no judgment. Yeah. You know, I notice I'm feeling some doubt. I just I just notice it. I notice there's some things happening in my body right now or in my thought track, and then I just want you to name it. Like being able to name those emotions doesn't give them power it creates emotional resiliency and it kind of takes their power away. Like, and this, for me, it's putting, it's going neck down. It's putting my hand over my heart, trusting my body and saying, you know what? This feels like doubt. It feels a little bit like imposter syndrome, which also means I'm probably feeling a little insecure, maybe a little worrisome, a little nervous, a little exposed, maybe a yeah. twinge of excitement. So noticing it, naming it, and then just normalizing it. Like this is normal, like normal, normal. Everyone experiences doubt unless they're yeah. mentally unhealthy. Mm. 70% of people experience imposter syndrome and then reframing it. Yeah. This is what growth feels like. This is what stretching my comfort zone feels like. Yes. Everything feels uncomfortable for the moment while I'm taking that brave next step. I had a colleague who, who brilliantly said, he goes, you know, my kind of reframe it phrase is this is only going to hurt for a minute. And he's so right because you know, sometimes when you're pressing send on that really important ask, it does, it just hurts for a minute, you know, but then you do it and you're like, yes, this feels good. Cause I'm acting in alignment with my values and I'm taking brave next steps. Like you can do confident things while also feeling nervous, while also feeling yeah. doubt. Yeah, so yeah. notice it, name it, normalize it, reframe it. Love I have to do that. it every day, several times Love a day. It. Love <laughs> it. Um, lots again to kind of pick pick up there but one thing I wanted to illustrate was around this idea of self-sabotage and maybe this comes into the noticing it because sometimes we do that subconsciously and I've noticed mm -hmm. myself and and when things happen or when I forget to reply to someone who I it's really important that I reply to that person or miss a deadline or miss something I have to look at myself and think what's going on there that's a, on the subconscious level I'm sabotaging myself because it's not conscious I might have realized too late and I'm like okay I need to address that now so I just wanted to illustrate that that it, sometimes it's we might not even notice that we are yeah. self-sabotaging that it's very oh, much on the so unconscious right. level yeah, yeah because and it, one it thing I just would, this week <laughs> it happened to me too it like so I'll just out myself because I have no problem like telling like where I fall short so I'm writing this book right and as part of writing a book you're supposed to get blurbs for the back cover, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, so yeah. one of my, and you just illustrated it, but one of the ways I know I'm self-sabotaging is when I start stalling and procrastinating. Hmm. And so I was, I, I really wanted Adam Grant to write a blurb for my book. He wow. was, he was like my, yeah. my moonshot. Oh, yeah. Like this yeah, is my yeah. big goal. My idol right? basically. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I was perfecting the book. Like it, honestly, it was in a good enough spot that I had gotten other blurbs. You still had a few edits to go through, you know, but the book was 95% of the way there with just some, you know, basic editing, but I was waiting. I was like, nope, I'm going to wait until it's perfect. I'm going to wait until like everything is locked down and then I'm going to send it to him. So I finally freaking got up the courage to email him. You know, I find his email address, send him the pitch. 
And he responds back, you know, it only hurt for a minute and I hit send. And then he, yeah. he actually responded back fairly quickly. And I'm like, Oh, and he said that, he, you know, he thought this was a good angle and he wanted to see my full manuscript. And I'm like, Oh God, this is it. This is it. And then I sent him back the full manuscript and he's like, okay, what are the due dates? And so I kind of give him like a good, better, best in terms yeah. of, Hey, this is ideal. This would be good. And he goes, Oh, he goes, well, has your book gone to print yet? Because I only blurb books when my blurb can be on the cover of the first print run. And so I go to my publisher and I'm like, when does this actually go to print? We can hold it. It was going to print like that night or the wow. next day. So I had to respond back to him and be like, well, actually it's going to print tomorrow. And I realize you can't read my book in a day. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I wish you the best of luck. It's just not going to work. But when you talk about self-sabotage, that was such a learning moment for me this week that I'm like, yeah. because I procrastinated oh, waiting yeah. for perfection because yes. I was scared that he would read my manuscript and think it was stupid or he was going to debunk all my ideas. Like all yeah. of this mind trash, all these expensive yeah. thoughts were causing me to procrastinate. Yeah. And I lost out on what could have been a really valuable opportunity. And like, the, so I'm so glad you brought that up because it's in those little moments sometimes that we see ourselves procrastinating, not yeah. replying, right? Yes. Not like conveniently forgetting things that we have to go in and be like, what's really happening here? And exactly. Just, yeah. What yeah. an what a, an amazing example. I, and like, I'd be exactly the same. I'd be like, Adam Grant doesn't want to read my book. Yes. What? Like, oh. no way. He's this, you know, amazing organizational psychologist. He's got to completely be like, blow all of my research out of the water. Be like, what are you talking about? This yeah. is all rubbish, you know? Um, <sighs> so brilliant. I absolutely love that example. And it's so interesting, Kelly, when you talk about your framework around notice, name it, normalize, and then reframe it. Because when I talk about imposter syndrome, the first aspect of it or is really the identification. So it's acknowledging, acknowledging that it's imposter syndrome, acknowledging that it's kind of, it's almost separate to yourself and giving it a name. So naming it as imposter syndrome, but giving it a name as, you know, it can be Mrs. Hannigan from the Annie <laughs> movies. It can yes. be Sandra, which is my imposter. You know, is that Aoife speaking or is that Sandra speaking? Is that yeah. Sandra trying to self, you know, sabotage? So absolutely, absolutely love that. And this is only going to hurt for a minute. <laughs> So no, I have it's to give so credit true. to my colleague Darius. He said that his name is Darius, and Darius, he said okay. that once. Yeah, we got to give that to Darius. I'm like, oh, well, that's timeless wisdom. <laughs> yes, and I think Darius has got to be quoted all over my social media when this podcast yeah. comes out. Absolutely brilliant. I love it. Um, I think now, you know, just in the interest of time, we're having such a wonderful conversation. I would love to talk about the organizational side of this and the systemic issues that issue that exist in organizations and what we can do as leaders to address them, what we can do as women, how we can support ourselves, how we can support other women, how we can support organizations, how we can get other people involved, mm -hmm. men, non-binary. How do we get everyone involved in Yeah in addressing these issues. Absolutely. So my mission as a business and what I say in the book is I'm on a mission to help women advance to the rooms for decisions are made. And so my call to action in this book is diverse leadership teams. The only way we're going to change things systemically is when we have diversity and quality in the senior most decision-making rooms. And this is not just in corporate. Um, for anybody who is listening in the United States, this is really important in our government policies today. It's in, it, no matter where you live, it's important in government policy to have diversity in the people who are making the rules because traditionally 
we've grown up in a patriarchal environment. This is not men being bad. It's just that for the last several hundred years, men were in charge, women stayed home. So men made the rules, the, the, the workplaces, the government systems were made by men, you know, for the benefit for men. It's just the way it was. There's no blame. This is not a blame statement. Those are just facts. And so if we want to change workplaces, we need to have more diversity in the rooms where decisions are made. And one of the things I advocate for is we can change workplaces by changing one woman at a time. And that's my focus. Because if I can help one woman at a time, maybe she'll have the courage to speak up. Maybe she'll have the courage to run for office. Maybe she'll have the courage to go for the promotion. And when we start to see more women in leadership and we start to see more women advocating, I'm sure you and everyone listening can think of a woman that you saw show up, speak up, take a risk. And because she did all of those things, it probably inspired you to do the same. You're like, oh my gosh, her speaking up and saying what she really thought and how she really felt was so freeing, right? It's like, it's freeing for us to watch that. And that's what creates the ripple effect. So I think to change the systems of work, we need to see more diversity in leadership. The research shows that companies are more profitable when there are women in the senior most positions, when they have more diverse leadership teams. I mean, study after study after study. So I advocate that this is not just a social justice issue. Mm. This is an economic issue that can't be ignored. Yeah. And so it's going to take, yes, women showing up, but it's also going to take some brave men who, and there are ones out there who are less concerned about preserving the status quo and more concerned about um, advocacy and equality and recognizing that it's actually good for them too, because when they make more money, they can build bigger tables. So I, I really, really think that that's where it needs to be focused because then the systems will change, the policies will change. And I think everything kind of trickles down from there. I love that. Make more money to build bigger tables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what they all want. It's what we all want, right? More impact. Impacts our communities, everything. Yeah. Impact on the, the whole of society really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so in in addressing this issue at a systemic level, it's really done by one woman at a time. Is there anything else that we could do to support that, to facilitate that, to make sure that that happens at an organisational level rather than thinking about it one woman at a time? Is there anything to think that on, on a bigger scale that we could do? So one of the things I've seen organisations do really well is um, to focus on the data. So I'm thinking of two organizations in particular that, um, as an example, they went in and looked at the data for a few things. One, they did an assessment to discern if there was any gender pay disparities. Step one, let's look at the data. Let's compare equal titles because we need to rectify some pay issues because um, inequality in pay can lead to disengagement, dissatisfaction, and ultimately turnover. And turnover is really costly. Okay, so that was step one. Mm. Step two, they looked at the data to say, um, what is the rate of um, women turning over versus men turning over. Like, let me give you an example. So they looked at who was being promoted up the scales in leadership and then thus who was leaving. And what this organization found was that when there were um, candidates being eligible for promotions, men were being chosen for those promotions more times than women, even though there could have been, you know, equal 
candidates. And then what would happen is because women weren't getting promoted, they were looking at exit surveys and they noticed that more women were leaving and citing a lack of development or promotional opportunities. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so one of the ways that they really started to impact and make change was by looking at hard data, like, because sometimes it's really hard to argue with the data. And so they yeah, use yeah. the data as a reason for change. And we said, Hey, not only do we need to pay folks equally, but we need to make sure that we are um, promoting folks at you know an equal rate. Um, if there aren't enough female or you know people who identify as women candidates or non-binary candidates you know available for promotion, what are we doing? Then the the second thing was to look at okay, well, is there a disparity there then in leadership mentoring and development? Are men you know getting more development opportunities, and so therefore their names are mentioned, they're in the rooms, they have more skills. And so do we have equal development opportunities? And one of the things that I really encourage employees to take a look at, and I know these clients did too, is to recognize that since men are primarily in the decision-making rooms, they receive a lot of informal mentoring because they're in the rooms. They, They watch the dynamics, they see how things play out, right? Um, they're in the room where it's happening, you know, and that in and of itself is development because you're, yeah. you're, you're in the rooms. And so how do we give equal and, um, development opportunities for women? And so when I talk to organizations about this, I really encourage them to look at the data first because it's, it's hard for folks who've always benefited from the ways of doing things to look at unconscious biases because people, we all have biases, but we all like to think we also have no biases. I mean, like, let's just be honest. Right. And so that's a really hard punch to go in with when it, from a diversity lens. So I think it's really important to look at the data and let the data tell the story and then look at the results that you want to create and then start to ask yourselves, well, these are the results data wise that we want to create in terms of equity, inclusion, results, innovation, revenue, et cetera. Well, then what different choices and what actions do we need to take? you know, to, to get that result and really coming from a data-driven place, because then, then folks may typically soften a little bit towards looking at unconscious biases and those sorts of things. So. Yeah. You're, you're speaking my language now with my market research data analytics background. So I love talking about this kind of stuff and using that data that, that organizations already have access to. This is not additional. They should have all of this information already um, and really look at that. And I love what you had to say about, well, you know, men are already in the room and they're therefore their names are being mentioned. They're getting this, like you say, informal mentoring. Um, but the idea then that we never think that we have bias, we always think that we're totally unprejudiced and, and unbiased in in lots of different ways, when in fact the biases normally are unconscious that we're not actually aware of them. I know there's a big talk around unconscious bias, and you know the jury's out on whether that really works or not. You know, some people say that it it works well. I've seen people doing training in it, but on the other hand, it's like if it's unconscious, it can you really bring it to that level of of a consciousness that you're actually yeah. aware of that and you're so oh, right absolutely. That, the, the people who have always made the decisions are the ones who need to be challenged the most because they're doing, you know, th- this is the way things have always been done. This is the way we've always done things. And therefore mm-hmm. it has, it, it's never been a problem before. And it's like, as more women rise through the ranks, as more women get to those more senior positions, it becomes an issue for them. You know, the, the kind of solid examples I'm thinking is having meetings at times when children need to be collected, where women mm-hmm. are typically, you know, and I'm not 
painting broad brushstrokes here you know it's typically women are the ones who are Mm -hmm. collecting kids at a specific time and meetings are held at that time it was never an issue before but now that a woman is in the meeting room and she has kids she has to go and go and collect them so yeah um, it's a hundred percent I hear from my clients all the time yes yeah 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 it's just a a real kind of solid example of things that actually happen and Kelly we've been talking for a long time but lots and lots of gems in there lots of nuggets of information um the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast what does being happier at work mean to you you know being happier at work um really means things twofold things for me being happier at work typically means that I, me personally, I'm using my best talents every day. Yes. And when I'm using my best talents every day, there's like, and you all know if you're listening right now, like there's an energy that comes through you. Mm. There's an excitement. There's a geekiness, right? Like yes. I just can't wait to go do this. And when you are that way, not only do you contribute better to your organization, but you come home from work with more to give mm. because you're not zapped from that energetic toll of like pushing a rock uphill all day long. And then when I think about being happier at work, it it really also twofold then impacts the organization. When you have, when you take the time and energy to really get to know people and know what makes them tick and what their talents are and aligning as what I say, aligning their purpose and their paycheck, it benefits the organization too, because you have people who have more energy at work. They get things done quicker. They're better to their colleagues. And ultimately that's more profitable to the organization. So, um, it's all just about energy you know, and you know what the energy can do not only to somebody personally, but professionally as well. So absolutely love that. If people want to reach out, if they want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? And and also please tell us about your book. When is it coming out? How do we pre-order it? Yes. All of the, the good stuff. All the good stuff. Okay. So my hardcover, the audio book, everything that comes out through the bookstores, Amazon, all the good stuff comes out November 1st. However, if you are somebody who doesn't like to wait for things, I have that a partnership. Like <laughs> I know. I have a partnership through an ebook company. It's kind of like a Kindle, only it's interactive with like book club discussions. Oh, I have wow. a partnership with them. It's called Fable. You can just download the Fable app mm-hmm. and there will be opportunities to access it early. I think at the time you are listening to this, we're currently in a book club cycle, but there will be another one popping up, I think, in the September 1st ish time frame. If you want a little yeah. early, otherwise you can wait for all the traditional formats November 1st. So it's closing the confidence gap, boost your peace, your potential and your paycheck. The best place to go is just to go to closing the forward slash book. And then I'm on social media. I love me some Instagram. I'm at Kelly Ray Thompson, Kelly with an I R A E Thompson. And then, um, I'm on LinkedIn too. So you can also find me, um, at Kelly Thompson on LinkedIn. I think it's in forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson as well. And then, yeah, send me a message. I'd love to hear what you learned and Brilliant. talk to you. Yes, absolutely loved the conversation today. Loved your energy, Kelly. So thank you so much. Thanks for your sharing your insights, your wisdom. Absolutely loved the conversation today. Thank you. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. That was Kelly Thompson. And I really hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as Kelly and I enjoyed having the conversation. I think you will agree there was absolutely loads to talk about. And we would love if you would get involved in the conversation on social media. I will be going live with Kelly 
to talk about the key highlights from today's episode. So if you want to tune in on LinkedIn Live, please go ahead and do that. Also, feel free to get involved in the conversation over on LinkedIn. Connect with me, Aoife O'Brien, that's A-O-I-F-E-O-B-R-I-E-N, or on Instagram, happieratwork.ie. I wanted to summarise some of the key points that Kelly and I covered We started by talking about what the confidence gap actually is. And it was based on some research done in Wharton. And I absolutely, well, I won't say I love the research, but I love the insights that are coming from the research and the steps that we can take to address the issues that have been identified. So basically that men get higher starting salaries, women get lower starting salaries, despite the fact that they did slightly better. And this is all about self-advocacy and how we as women are promoting or not promoting ourselves at work. We talked about the individual perspective. So the first kind of area, if you like, is this likability bias. So women want to be perceived as being liked if we show what are typically masculine traits, things like assertiveness, we are perceived as being not so nice. And when men show those types of characteristics, they are perceived as being a a little bit more manly. Um, So that is the first. So the steps that Kelly talked about in terms of addressing that is seeing what are typically perceived as being flaws as something as a superpower. So kind of flipping the script on how we perceive ourselves. So in her specific example, she was always perceived as being a bit too assertive. So we're always too much of something. So what do people perceive you as being too much of and how do you turn that into a superpower? I loved this idea of identifying your leadership values. So thinking about what you actually stand for, what you're willing to put up with so that someone else doesn't come in and tell you how you should be leading in a different way. I loved the reframe as well about this, you know, about the flaw. So reframing it it as, and again, in Kelly's example, being direct, but also being empathetic. So what can you, it's a both and situation. We touched on doubt and imposter feelings as well. I'll come back to that in a minute because I know we we kind of brushed over it at the start and then we started to uh, talk about it in a bit more detail at a later stage. So I will come back to that point. The third element then was boundaries and the unpaid workload of women. So doing the planning, doing the notes, doing the emotional support, supporting with e- employee resource groups, ERGs. And uh, And this is perpetuating the gender pay gap. And I know we didn't go into a huge amount of detail, but there is a previous podcast episode, Kelly referenced it, uh, where I talk about the gender pay gap and pay transparency and things like that. And the fourth element then is to trust yourself. And we talked about really getting back in touch with your body. What is your gut telling you? How do you want your people to actually feel and what is the right thing to do really about trusting your intuition. So we went in a bit of detail around that. Kelly refers to our our thoughts or our limiting beliefs as expensive thoughts because it's costly to your peace, your potential and your paycheck. And this relates directly back to her book, which is all about closing that confidence gap in order to improve your peace, your potential and your paycheck. We talked about the difference between then doubt and imposter feelings. And I absolutely loved this 
example that Kelly shared of self-sabotage and sometimes we don't even know that we're doing it to ourselves and that's why I wanted to call it out that sometimes this is a subconscious thing that's happening so we procrastinate and you heard in her example with Adam Grant exactly what happened there she was procrastinating she thought everything had to be perfect to share something with Adam Grant and as it turns out he wasn't able to do that because she had stalled for so long I just thought what a powerful example in action of how we can sabotage ourselves. I absolutely loved Kelly's framework then and it's very much related to my ABC framework. So she talked about noticing and having self-compassion because, you know, it's it's not about judging yourself for having these feelings. It's about showing a little bit of self-compassion. Then the second is to name it. So what emotions are coming up for you and being able to recognise resilience in yourself as well as these emotions come up. It's about normalising it. Then that's the third step. So recognising that this is a normal part of being human and most people experience imposter syndrome at some point and then reframing it. I absolutely loved that she called it stretching your comfort zone. That is something I talk about all the time. I don't say stepping out of your comfort zone because for me, I feel if you step out, you can kind of step back into your comfort zone if you feel uncomfortable being out of your comfort zone. But for stretching your comfort zone, it seems to be something that you can, you can take small steps towards stretching your comfort zone. And when you stretch it, that becomes within your comfort zone then as well. I loved, and I'm going to reference back to Darius, her colleague, this is only going to hurt for a minute. So when you do something that's a little bit scary, oftentimes it's only going to take a minute and it's only going to be scary for a minute and then it's over and you've done whatever it is you set out to do, you've taken the action. From an organisational perspective then, we talked about creating diverse leadership teams, influencing government policies. And traditionally, we've had this patriarchal society, essentially. And really, it's about changing one woman at a time. So on an individual basis, who can we support to get to those decision-making rooms where decisions are made? And if we can influence one woman at a time, give her the courage to run for office, to go for a promotion, it will have a ripple effect on other people. So I'm sure you can think right now of someone who has inspired you in some way. And that's how we make the change. I really, really loved that. Also worth noting in relation to that as well, if you didn't know this already, that having diversity at that level of leadership also makes companies more profitable. So it has been shown in the data that companies are more profitable when they have a diverse leadership. Aside from the fact that it's the right thing to do and that your customers should be represented at that C-suite level as well. The final thing then that we talked about was using data to make these types of decisions or to understand what's happening in your own organisation. If you would like support with that, that is one of the services that I offer. So do feel free to reach out to me uh, if you need support, if you need some guidance on where to get started. This is something that my background is in market research and data analytics. It's something I'm hugely passionate about. So if you just want to know where to get started, do feel free to reach out to me. And one final thought then is, after listening to this episode, is there one action that you can take? What are you going to do differently? You can let me know on LinkedIn. You can connect with me there. Let me know through Instagram 
or reach out to me directly, Aoife, that's A-O-I-F-E, at happieratwork.ie, and I look forward to hearing from you. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I am so glad you tuned in today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I would love to get your thoughts. Head on over to social media to get involved in the conversation. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love if you could rate, review it, or share it with a friend. If you want to know more about what I do or how I could help your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie. 